Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was in high school, a large portion of the yearbook each year was dedicated to the seniors. So the other classes had like little, really little small pictures of every student. And if you're lucky, they got your name right. Um, and then seniors had big pictures of them. And, and when I was a senior, we got to pretend like we were wearing a tuxedo for the picture. So you showed up, didn't matter what you're wearing when you showed up. They put a tuxedo jacket on you with a dicky, you know, like a fake shirt that made it look like you actually had a tuxedo, like the, the bow tie and all that on, because that was the style. The girls had, a, it was just a shirt kind of thing, but it, it, it was frilly on the top, like feathery, like, like a boa kind of thing, but just along the, that made it look like they were in prom dresses. Again, that was the style. I don't think you had a choice. That was pretty much what you did. So you got th those big pictures. I think those are colors, color pictures. And you know, the, all the other students had little small black and whites, whatever with. So the yearbook was really about the seniors. And so they got to, every year they got to vote on uh, and give class awards. Important things like cutest couple, <laughs> class clown, most likely to get arrested, most likely to run for office, and a lot of times people won both awards. <laughs> it happens. It happens. One category they didn't have was teacher's pet. At least they didn't have it officially, it wasn't voted on, but everybody knew who it was, right? They didn't get their picture in the yearbook, but everybody knew who it was. Every <coughs> class had that student who, you know, Butter wouldn't melt in their, ma their mouth. And whenever they asked a question, the implication was always that, that they knew the answer and they were smarter than everybody else in the class, including the teacher. And they would ask the question as if to test the teacher and at least show off the fact that they knew the answer. Think of Sheldon, if you're familiar with Big Bang Theory or young Sheldon. Well, the man in our reading reminds me a bit of that student. You know, the student who asks the question to demonstrate their own knowledge and challenge the teacher. And although the man in our reading in Mark's gospel, he's just described as a man, this, when this same story is told in Matthew's gospel, he's described as the rich young ruler. So he had probably been voted by his classmates as the most likely to succeed, and clearly he had succeeded. He had, he had great wealth, he was a ruler, he was young, and by his own admission, he had followed the law since he was a, a young age. So he was accomplished. Now, we don't have any director's notes or any editorial comments in our reading, so it's impossible to know exactly how it is that the man approached Jesus, but I have my suspicions. We read that the man ran up to Jesus and knelt before him, which is what a teacher's pet would do, folks. And then he called Jesus good teacher, another suck-up move. What must I do to inherit eternal life, he asks. 
And I imagine him asking the question with a bit of arrogance, presuming that he had already done everything that he needed to do to inherit eternal life, and Jesus would congratulate him for having done that. So when Jesus begins the response and and says, well, you must follow the law, and he begins to explain which of the Ten Commandments that he had to be sure to have fallen, which followed, which all had to do with how he lived in relationship with other people. So the man, of course, then says, I'm good. Jesus, I've been following the law since I was even younger than I am now. But rather than receiving Jesus' assurance that he had earned the eternal life that he desired, Jesus looked at him, loved him, and revealed to him that his wealth, his status, his deeds were not sufficient to earn the one thing that evaded him. You see, rather than keep, just keeping the letter of the law, what Jesus was requiring of that man and of us was to keep the heart of the law. The man had done everything the law required, but he hadn't actually loved his neighbor. He needed to provide hospitality to strangers. He needed to love his neighbors recklessly. He needed to become a slave to all a servant of all. You see, the man had spent so much time becoming the first, the best, building up his resume and his status that he lost sight of the core of Jesus' message, which is love. Over the past few readings from Mark, we have been challenged and the disciples Jesus has challenged us and the disciples' understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So, (coughs) in last Sunday's reading, we, like Peter and the man in, in today's reading, have all set our minds on human things, not divine things. You remember last week, Jesus rebukes Peter and says, you've set your mind on human things, not divine things. So too have we. So too has this man who followed the law without actually doing what the law requires. Now it doesn't make sense that Jesus would ask a man who had wealth to sell all that he did and give it to the poor, right? If he gives everything he has to the poor, what does that make him? Poor. That's illogical. It's it's solving one problem but creating another But I think that is actually the point that Jesus is making. On Valentine's Day, which was also Ash Wednesday, you might remember just a few days ago, we read from the Christ hymn from Philippians 2, chapter 5 through 11. And if you're doing the serving challenge, you've probably read that in the introduction. If your small group is met, you heard me reading that on the video. In the Christ hymn, Paul writes that even though Jesus came in the form of God, he emptied himself. He gave it all away. He lowered himself. And he took on the form of a slave, a servant. Jesus took on human likeness in order that we might see what it looks like to live, not as one who has everything, 
but is one who acknowledges their need and then gracefully receives hospitality from others. You see, too often as Christians, we imagine ourselves as the ones who have been sent to save the world with all of our resources, all of our knowledge, all of our good intentions. Like the man in the story, doing what we think the Bible tells us to do. But the one thing that was required of him was to release his wealth and his power. The one thing he hadn't done was to put himself in a position like Jesus where he was a person in need. He hadn't allowed himself to to be in a position where he had to rely upon the hospitality of others. He was always a giver and denied other people the opportunity to give to him. Two weeks ago, we read about Jesus sending out the 12 in pairs. And when he sent them out, he sent them with nothing. Take no cash. Just take your sandals. Take one tunic. Don't take a a second tunic. Go out and expect hospitality from strangers. Go with nothing and put yourself in a position where you are vulnerable where you have to rely on the hospitality of others as you go into their villages. And Jesus asks the same thing of the man in the story this morning. It sounds difficult. And Jesus explains that it would be even more difficult for a rich man who had not put himself in a position of need to enter heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Clearly, this is hyperbole, friends. Scholars have done a lot to try and make this make sense. And they they talk about there must be a gate in Jerusalem that was called the Eye of the Needle. And you could, if you were careful, you could get a camel to walk through that gate for you. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. It's just a camel walking through a gate. Good to go. Nothing to worry about, rich people. It's not that hard. That's not what Jesus is talking about. There's no evidence that that gate ever existed. It's just our effort to try and tame what Jesus is saying and make it not sting like it does. In fact, a camel would have been the largest animal that most of the people who are listening to Jesus would have have seen. A killer whale wouldn't have mattered so much to them. But a camel, they knew what that looked like. And the eye of a needle was probably the smallest thing that they had ever seen as well, uh, of an opening. So Jesus says, take that largest thing you've seen and get it through the smallest thing you've seen. Easy enough. Impossible? Of course. For us. But nothing is impossible for God. The point is and was that in order to be a disciple of Jesus, in order to enter into the everlasting relationship with God, the man, the disciples, and us must be generous and giving with all that we have in order that we too might receive that same generosity and hospitality from others. Seem impossible? Seem unlikely that Jesus would require such a thing of us? Nothing is impossible with God. For you see, the kingdom of God is not hierarchical like my high school yearbook, 
or any other organization that we create. We are all about structures. Who's in charge? Who reports to who? How are we going to get things done? That's not the kingdom of God, folks. The kingdom of God is about everybody being loved equally in the ways that we need to be loved. Serving others and being served by others. None of us in any greater of a position than another. I shouldn't be standing three steps higher than you, but it does help with you being able to hear me. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Jesus said it to the disciples in our reading from chapter 9 last Sunday. And we read it on Ash Wednesday. And he said it again today. Now I mentioned on Ash Wednesday that when things are repeated in the Bible, we should pay attention to them. And I, and I said that as it relates to the three passion predictions that occur in, in Mark 9 and Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10. We've read two of those three. We'll read the third next week. They're important, so Jesus repeats them. This too is important and he repeats it more often than the passion prediction. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. The disciples are going to argue over this time and time again. We're going to argue over who's the greatest. Who's got this whole eternal life thing locked down. Who needs to hear the good news of the gospel and who, who is already in. I hear it all the time. Well you got an in with God. So do you. We all do, as Mr. Justin was saying. And how do we have that in? We talk to God. We put God first. We rely upon God. We will continue to read about the first shall be last and the last shall be first until we get to Easter. And it doesn't make sense. I've made that point. It sounds like new math, which I still don't understand that. Why can't we just add and subtract? Numbers over here and over here. But it's actually old math. It's old logic that comes from Jesus himself. And when it doesn't make sense to us, it's because we put our things on human, our mind on human things and not on divine things. For you see, the very things that we think impossible are not for God. But not in some fairy godmother genie in a bottle way where if we just ask correct, in the correct way or if we rub that bottle just right, we'll get three wishes to get whatever we want. That's not what Jesus is talking about here with nothing is impossible for God. It isn't that you just pray for the lottery to win the lottery. Because I got news for you. If you do, we're going back a few verses. Give it all to the poor. What seems impossible? It seems impossible that God could love all of creation. It seems impossible that God could love all of creation. Look around. But God does. It seems impossible that God could ask us to love all of creation. And it is for us, but not with God. It seems impossible that we would be asked to trust and rely upon our neighbors and allow them to care and provide for us. It is from our human perspective, but not with God. Not with God. You see, for God to work through us, we need to empty ourselves of our divine perceptions and our divine aspirations for for and of ourselves. We too need to lower ourselves as Jesus did. 
Jesus, fully divine, gave that up in order that he might be a, a servant of all. He might become like us. And what do we do? We just keep trying to become more divine ourselves as opposed to becoming like Jesus was as he ministered with the disciples, as he washed their feet, as he gave his life for you and for me. What does the Lord require of us? Nothing that he wouldn't and hasn't already done for us. We need to allow ourselves to serve and be served. Not to fulfill some vain ambitions, but to receive and to reflect the love of God that has been given to us through the one who was betrayed and killed and three days later raised from the dead. For as we love others and are loved and served by them, I think that is where Jesus is reflected. That is where Jesus is present. That is where the kingdom of God is beginning to become established here on earth. Where we acknowledge our mutuality and our need for each other. Our love for each other. And our faith and trust in God and in God's creation. It's beautiful to imagine. And one day, one day, we will all experience it. But today, I pray we can experience it just a bit more than yesterday, and a bit more the next day, and a bit more the next. Amen.